Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. This week we celebrated our 11th birthday and where better to be than in our home venue, the Black Box in Belfast. The theme was dark. Maybe not the most appropriate for a celebration, but we had amazing stories and there are three of them for you on this podcast. Let's run round the Harbinson's caravan naked. <laughs> what? We headed downstairs for breakfast and just as the lift doors closed, I knew that the elevator wasn't the only thing descending. In blind panic, I sent Mark to get Andrew in from the grave digging, whilst I phoned the vets to let them know of the miracle that had just happened. Okay, well, let's get on with it. And first up is first-timer Julie May Noteman. I need to explain that I had just met Julie earlier that day, as we are both on a master's course together. So it was a real surprise when she mentioned 10 by 9. Here she is with her dark story. To understand this story, you must first understand the nature of the man I am married to. (laughs) He has at times a serious intensity, often pushing him so deep into single-minded thought that it renders him oblivious to the rest of the world. On the flip side, there is this little boy within. The little boy who loves tennis, in fact, any sport, The little boy who loves games. The little boy who loves puzzles. The little boy who loves adventure. At any given moment in any given day or night, that little boy might unexpectedly arrive into the silent, mundane and ordinary and toss it upside down. Our caravan is close to the shore with a privileged wide gap of grass to one side and caravans snugged in to the other. At end of season, the nights begin to draw in. From mid-August on, the caravanners comment upon this on a daily basis as though nature has played us a curved ball. Unbelievable! How early it gets dark these nights, calls Brendan as he strolls past carrying a grandchild's coat while pushing an empty buggy. Too true, I reply. It was almost dark by nine last night. That'll be the start of it, says Brendan. (laughs) Indeed, I reply sagely. Batten down the hatches. The dark at the caravan has never been a scary what's round the corner darkness. It is more of a comforting, under the duvet with a torch kind of dark. Caravan darkness brings its own calm stillness. Moon reflected on lapping water, quiet breathing. On this particular evening, at end of season, when the night had indeed drawn in, he and me were sitting at the front of the caravan, gas fire on, too late for any meaningful activity, too early for bed. Let's play a game, he said. The aforementioned little boy had arrived full of twinkle and excitement. I have an idea. I waited. 
Let's run round the Harbinson's caravan naked. <laughs> what? I said, are you serious? He was serious. No, absolutely not. No, we are not running round the Harbinson's caravan naked. How can he even think that's a thing? <laughs> but it's dark, he said, as though the darkness justified the rashness of this suggestion. No, I said. You're no fun, he said. <laughs> Pause, slightly wounded. He had pushed a button. I am fun! I countered with my best, oh, look at me, best fun girl ever, voice. <laughs> but you won't run round the Harbinson's caravan naked, he said, turning his head to the side as he did so. Someone might see us, I bleated with less conviction. Unfortunately for my rapidly weakening case for the defence, the Harbinsons were not actually in their van that evening. An unusual occurrence, as they are 10 out of 10 top marks for caravan attendance people. <laughs> to the left of them were Billy and Nell, who, due to ongoing health issues, were rarely seen out during the day, let alone wandering in the dark trying to spot streakers. What about Sandra and Susan at the front? I challenged. That's just a risk you have to take. <laughs> he said with a frisson of excitement. He loves an element of risk, my husband. I pulled out my trump card. There could be glass out there. <laughs> and what about your Achilles? <laughs> or your ankle? Running in the dark on hard ground, no shoes, asking for trouble. Months of injury, no tennis. Okay, he conceded. We can wear our trainers. <laughs> for a brief moment, I felt slightly smug, having made my point forcibly and him agreeing to the trainers. Hold on a minute. How did it suddenly become we? And why am I now congratulating myself on being able to wear trainers whilst participating in some naturous nocturnal madness? What clever manipulation has just occurred? Did I miss something? It's okay, he continued. If you really don't want to do it, I'll go by myself. I knew that face. He wasn't bluffing. Only a psychologist would be able to unpick the seismic leap that then occurred in my brain. Maybe it was the Presbyterian in me, but some very bizarre voice was telling me that it would somehow be more decent for a man to be seen running naked around a caravan <laughs> with his wife than without. <laughs> More easily explained, less shocking. And so, heaven knows why, I find myself sitting in the caravan, stark naked, 
with trainers. <laughs> I insisted on the caravan being in complete darkness before we left to make our exit less noticeable. As anxiety rose, I fussed over the fine details. Clockwise or anti-clockwise? <laughs> you go first. Don't start to run until we are both down the steps. <laughs> Promise you won't leave me behind. Promise! We tiptoed down the steps. The darkness and cold enveloped us. Every man for himself, he whispered, and we were off. Out left with a nimble sidestep past the Harbinson's whirly jig line. Down the side of Billy and Nell's, please God, don't let me give that man a heart attack. <laughs> past Sandra's, past Susan's, please, please don't come out, please don't come out. Round the front at pace, mind the tow bar. Now exposed to sea and moon. The waves crashed a resounding applause as the moon revealed my husband's white bottom leading the way at pace up the home straight. I hadn't breathed. The steps were in sight. With a finishing spurt that would have done Dame Mary proud, I took the steps two at a time. Achilles and ankles be damned. <laughs> and there we were, in the caravan, shivering under a blanket, trainers still on, giggling like youngsters. <sighs> I can't believe we just did that, I said. Neither can I, he said. You're great. <laughs> Several years hence, and the old caravan still stands with it, its rickety steps. The Harbinsons, Brendan, Sandra and Susan are still there with us, companionably living through the summer season and discussing the drawing in of the nights. Billy and Nell have passed on to caravan parks anew. We have never run round the caravan naked since that end of season night. But we do still walk on the beach of an evening. Occasionally I'll say to him, do you remember the night we... <laughs> we give each other a knowing grin, then stroll hand in hand into the impending darkness. Thanks so much, Julie. I don't know how I'm going to face you in seminars now, but hey. Uh, <laughs> and the Harbinson trying, they're moving. <laughs> don't worry, Julie, I won't tell anyone in class. It'll just be between you and me and the listeners. Thank you, and come back soon. And if you think you can follow in Julie's naked footsteps, mind your Achilles, then get in touch through our website at 10by9.com. We are always, always looking for storytellers or contact us through our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, next up, and we need a holiday. So here's Dave Thompson to transport us to the wonder of India. In my experience, there are certain things you expect when you visit India. It is vibrant. There is so much color, it makes Belfast look very drab by comparison. There is insane traffic, amazing food, occasional park huts, 
and stomach bugs. <laughs> Most people I know have succumbed to a stomach bug at some point or other in India, even on a short visit. I have been to Chennai in southeast India twice, both times with my dad. On the first occasion, we were afflicted by the runs, literally within minutes of each other, leading us to play a rather strange tag team with the ensuite, <laughs> according to level of desperation. <laughs> At the same time, we met up with another group of four men. We all had a barbecue together. And that night, all four of them had the runs within a couple of hours of each other. If you're interested, we put it down to the shrimps. On my return a year later, I tried my very best to avoid picking up another bug. Washing hands, using hand sanitizer, being careful what I touched, etc. But when you're working with a group of primary school children uh, who are delighted to see you and are up close and personal all the time, it's not that, it's not that easy. So we arrived on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, all went well. On Tuesday morning, I felt a little bit of abdominal tension, shall we say, as I got up and getting dressed. There was a slight gurgle, and a sort of a squeaky noise. And I don't like to obsess about these things, but when previous experience has proven that you may need to clench and run at a moment's notice, <laughs> it is best to pay attention. We headed downstairs for breakfast, and just as the lift doors closed, I knew that the elevator wasn't the only thing descending. <laughs> it wasn't a large hotel. It wasn't a long lift journey. But it felt like an eternity until the doors opened again on the ground floor. I sped past the breakfast area towards the downstairs toilet, along the dark corridor that didn't have any artificial light and in through the loo door. As the first door shut behind me, I pushed open the second door and dashed into the room. Simultaneously, all the lights went out. It was dark. Properly dark because there were no windows and no natural light leaking in through the two doors from the dull corridor beyond. It was brilliant Indian sunshine outside, but absolutely none of it had made its way into my part of the building. It might be the only time in my life I have been in absolute darkness. Because of the immaculate timing of the park hut, I had not been able to get my bearings in the room. I knew I was in the middle of a room, but I had no sense of where anything was. I stumbled to the nearest wall and began to feel my way along it until I came to a row of strangely shaped sinks. You're getting ahead of me. <laughs> I felt my way from one to the other, working around the room in a process of elimination, trying not to panic, but also knowing that time was not the only thing that was about to run out. On the next wall, I found another row of sinks, and I remember thinking, how many sinks do they have in here? And it was only when all the sinks on the previous wall flushed that I realized I had not been feeling my way along a row of sinks. But there was no time to be revulsed. Finally, my slightly damp hands felt the edge 
of what I was praying was a cubicle door. Try as I might, however, I couldn't find a door handle and the door would not move. And I remember digging my fingers around the edge, pulling as hard as I could until the door finally swung back, sort of. It came away. It didn't seem to be swinging freely. But no matter, I could sort out any damage later on. The trouble was there was a solid wall behind the door. And I tried to envisage what was happening in the dark, but none of it was making sense. I felt my way around the door, hoping that a gap would just somehow present itself to me. And then the door came off in my hands <laughs> and there was still no gap in the wall. And then I realized that the door that I thought I was holding had a frame the whole way around it and that it was really smooth and I had not found a door to a cubicle. I had detached a full length mirror from the wall. <laughs> And all the while, the gurgling in my stomach had upped its game to a threatening, boiling sensation. <laughs> Pressure was building, and I felt like I was trying to contain my own personal volcanic eruption. But in that moment, there was a split second of absolute clarity on the absurdity of the situation. And I remember thinking, you are in Chennai, in a pitch black toilet, holding a very large mirror in the air, about to shit yourself. <laughs> I set the mirror down and thankfully next, on my route around the room, I found a door handle, not the cubicle door, the door I had come in by. Dashing out into the corridor, I accosted the first member of staff I came across, a young guy, probably in his early 20s. I need a torch, I exclaimed. He looked startled, couldn't blame him, and confused. But at this point, I was desperate. I must have looked and sounded like a complete mad person, but I didn't really care. I really, really need a toilet, I said, partially bent over. I can't find one in the dark. Do you have a torch? In retrospect, there's really no reason why someone on the house staff of a hotel should be carrying a torch to the breakfast room. But bless him. He reached into his pocket, pulled out his phone, flicked on the light and handed it to me. I would like to stop just for a moment to appreciate what I consider to be an incredibly selfless act. I am not precious about my phone. Currently, I'm using a four-year-old battered iPhone. But if a stranger suddenly leapt out at me and said, I really, really need to find a toilet in the dark, I would not be handing it to them. <laughs> Following the phone light, I made it back through the first door, through the second door, through the cubicle door, where, God be praised, there was a toilet that I sat down on, not before time. What happened in that cubicle stays in that cubicle. <laughs> I mean, not literally. It wasn't that they couldn't get, it doesn't matter. Metaphorically speaking, other storytellers might be tempted to mine that part of the story for extra laughs, but I'm not going there. Let's just say that I really, really did go there. <laughs> I washed my hands, lightly wiped down the poor bloke's phone. <laughs> well, it would have been rude not to, come on. <laughs> Reattached the mirror to the two screws on the wall and exited. I handed the phone back to the member of the staff who now he looked at me less with fear and more with amusement, perhaps having dealt with crazy white people in desperate need of a toilet many times before. 
And as I walked away from him, the lights came back on. I made my way to the breakfast area and sat down at the table. Dad was tucking into his usual masala dosa. There's a park out there for a wee minute, he said. Heart still racing, adrenaline still coursing, skin still burning. I said, I, I noticed when it all went dark. Thanks so much, Dave, not just for the story, but also for your discretion. Great to have you back at Town by Nine. Remember, Town by Nine is always free and always will be, but you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal if you can. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcast. We'd be very grateful. Okay, on to our third and final story, and it comes from first-timer Pat Scott. When the local stable yard closed down, we inherited the yard cat, Richie. The animal lovers in our family longed for Richie to be cuddly and affectionate, but he treated us, us with disdain and cool indifference. Nevertheless, we loved him. One week he disappeared. I wasn't concerned about this because as a farmer's daughter, I knew about tomcats and their philandering ways, and I fully expected him to return looking tired, thin, but happy. Sure enough, on Friday, he returned looking bedraggled and exhausted, but instead of eating to make up for lost time, he was neither eating nor drinking. By Monday morning, I decided to take him to the vet, where they admitted him for some tests. That afternoon, I had a phone call from the vet, a slow-talking, serious-sounding man, who informed me that Richie had leukaemia. I was devastated. As I said before, I'm a farmer's daughter, so cats were to a penny on the farm, and it would have been unheard of to take a cat to the vet. So I didn't know that cats can be immunized against feline leukemia, and that all responsible cat owners get their cats vac- vaccinated. The only knowledge that I had of leukemia was from the patients that I had nursed over the years. I burst into tears at the news and asked, when does this chemotherapy start? The vet floored me by saying, Mrs. Scott, there'll be no chemo for your cat. No chemo, I sobbed. Why can my cat not have treatment? I was confused. Your cat's condition is far too advanced for anything to be done, he said. So how long does he have? I asked. Silence. Months? Silence. Weeks? More silence. Days? Mrs. Scott, your cat has less than 24 hours to live. Do you want me to put him down now? At that point, I did what I often do under pressure and started to prattle at high speed. You can't put him down yet. I have to collect my daughter from the airport. She's coming in on an easy jet flight from Liverpool. I need to get the boys from school. One of them is after school football. And I need to tell my husband he's at work. On and on I went. When the vet finally got a word in, he asked us all to meet him at the surgery at 5 p.m. to see Richie and say our goodbyes before he was put to sleep. I phoned my husband, Andrew, who was in the middle of a business meeting. I bawled down the phone. Richie has leukaemia. I could hear him excusing himself from the meeting before saying, who has leukaemia? (laughs) Richie has leukaemia. I choked down the phone. 
poor Andrew, he had heard incoherent burbling, but couldn't make out the most important detail, who was sick. We arranged that he would pick up our daughter from the airport. I would get the boys from school and we would rendezvous at the vets at 5pm for the final goodbye. If you've ever been in a vet's waiting room at 5pm, you'll know that loads of people are arriving in from work to pick up their pets. We all sat in sombre silence in the middle of this throng before being called into our room. Richie was brought in and set on the examination table. Now, I don't know what had gone on during the day, but he was a shell of his former self. I couldn't stand to see him like that, so I went out to the waiting room where I sat quietly, sniffling into a tissue, aware that people were surreptitiously glancing over at me. Moments later, the kids burst into the waiting room in various states of despair, ranging from dignified silent tears, Michael, inconsolable sobbing, Kathy, to open-mouthed howling, Mark. This was particularly surprising as he wasn't even an animal lover. Andrew brought up the rear, stony-faced, carrying the environmentally friendly coffin, that is, the cardboard box, with the remains laid out in it. We put the box in the boot of one of the cars and the sad little funeral cortege wound its way home. Once home, I sent Andrew, still in a suit, out to the garden to dig a grave. Cathy and Michael went to their rooms to grieve in private and spend time in respectful contemplation. Mark and I kneeled beside the box, opened it up and started to stroke the still warm Richie and say our final farewells. Richie, you were such a beautiful cat. Stroke, stroke. You were the most handsome cat ever. Stroke, stroke. We've always loved you. Stroke, stroke. To this day, I don't know what happened next. But as we stroked our beautiful dead cat, his head slowly started to rise up until it was almost out of the box. Mark and I looked at each other as the cold fingers of fear and disbelief gripped us. We both jumped to our feet and ran screaming out of the room. Unfortunately, we both reached the door at the same time and momentarily got jammed in, in the door frame. In blind panic, I sent Mark to get Andrew in from the grave digging, whilst I phoned the vets to let them know of the miracle that had just happened. <laughs> when phoning businesses, it's usual to wait for ages for a reply, press one for reception, and then get put on hold to speak to the correct person. That time's often useful for getting your thoughts in order, but alas, on this occasion, the vet, the same slow-talking, serious-sounding one from earlier in the afternoon, answered the phone on the second ring. As I hadn't yet put together a coherent account of what had happened, I blurted out, that cat that you just killed, it's alive! <laughs> the vet asked to speak to my husband. <laughs> I stood beside Andrew and could hear his replies. Yes, mm-hmm. Okay, yes, I understand, before hanging up. He said that he was to take the cat back to the vets for examination. I said I would go with him, but no, the vet's last instruction had been to make sure to leave me at home. 
When Andrew walked into the waiting room with the cat in the cardboard box, it was now 6pm and was rammed full of pet owners collecting their loved ones after minor surgery. He made his way up to the receptionist, gave his name and said he was to see the vet. What seems to be the problem, Mr Scott? She said chirpily. Unsure of what to say, he opened the box, tipped it up a little for her to see inside. Go straight to room three, she said in a hushed voice interlaced with great urgency. In room three, two vets examined Richie and confirmed that he was indeed dead. No explanation was forthcoming as to why what had happened had happened. I suspect they'd filed it under a lunatic owner. <laughs> when Andrew brought him home again, he headed out into the garden in a suit to finish the grave. This time we didn't open the box. Instead, the children made a little wooden cross from lollipop sticks. They wrote on it simply, Richie, you were the best. Thank you very much, Pat. Um, I love the way you indicated to your daughter, Kathy, over here, just so that we can all know, um, just to laugh at you. Yeah, there you are. Hi, Kathy. Nice to meet you. You're very welcome to tell me nine as well. If you want to tell the other version of that story, we'd be delighted for you to come back. Our theme next month is going to be my mad mother. So. No, it's not. That would be a great theme indeed. Thanks for the idea, Podrick. But thanks mostly to you, Pat, for that amazing story. Brilliant. And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com or via our website. We have a few extra events coming up, so keep an eye out for those. And please, if you can, tell as many people as you can about the podcast. If you're a fan of Podrick's podcast, Poetry Unbound, then you'll be delighted to know that he has a new book coming out in October. It's called Poetry Unbound, 50 Poems to Open Your World. It's brilliant. Thanks to the lovely people who help us bring 10 by 9 events to life, Margaret, Leanne and Chris. Thanks to the lovely people of the Black Box, our gorgeous audience and all our storytellers, but especially Julie Mae Oatman, Dave Thompson and Pat Scott. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye. <laughs>